Okay, well, we're going to pray and we're going to get started. Here's the basic structure of what we're doing. I'm going to spend about half of our time, maybe a little more than half, on just some of the basics of biblical counseling. And then I'll spend uh, some time on just some functional things, kind of how we want to do this at Grace. Um, so if you're, if you're not interested in that end of it, that might be a little less interesting to you. But I think it's good for you to know how the ministries work uh, at the church. So, um, but that part will be a little bit more functional. This is a bit like doing a three-hour seminar on how to fly a 747. It'll give you some basics of kind of where the controls are, and that's about it. Um, I'll talk more about further training we're going to offer uh, in the coming. We'll do that later this morning, but we're, we are going to offer some more training uh, at a much higher level because I won't be the one doing it. So uh, that'll make it even better uh, for this. So let's pray, and then we're going to get going here um, and we'll start with a foundation. Let's pray for a moment. Our Father, we come to you now thankful uh, for the Word of God. It is authoritative. It is living. It is active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. And so we trust the Spirit's work through the Word to divide soul and spirit, to, to test our hearts, to know our minds. And we pray, Lord, to learn how to apply the Word of God to the lives of others after first applying the word to ourselves. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Um, one little side note. Uh, there, we ordered enough um, books by Wayne Mack, Biblical Counseling Homework, uh, to give to one to every family, and apparently they didn't arrive on time. So they're here? Where are they? Okay, at the next break, do you mind grabbing them? Okay, they arrived on time. So uh, anyway, if you signed up for this, um, we, we, we should have enough for one for every family. If, you don't, if we don't, just uh, let me know. But uh, we want to give that to you bo- both as a gift for being here and also just as a resource for you. Um, I'll, I'll warn you, uh, it's, it's so old that you look at it and you go, they did this on a typewriter. Who doesn't know what a typewriter is? Okay, it's that old, but the, the, the content is classic, and it, it's the Word of God, so it never really changes. So it could have been done on, on a stone tablet, and it wouldn't matter. Um, so uh, it's a resource for you. I'll tell you how to use it uh, in a little bit. So let's kind of start with just a, a foundation. Romans 15, verse 14, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Um, the word instruct one another is, is, uh, can be translated counsel one another. This is an important verse because what this says is that in the church of Jesus Christ, it's not the, the so-called professionals that should do all the counseling. In fact, let me put it to you this way. The whole entire model that says, well, I go to church and my pastor is supposed to preach and to do counseling, that model came from the world. Not the preaching part, the counseling part. 200 years ago, the, the Puritans didn't have a, Puritan pastors didn't have a secretary that made appointments for them. The, the pastors visited families uh, or had them visit and they checked in like we do our shepherding visits on all aspects of their life. And if there was a problem, the pastor would write them a letter. 
And the leather was filled with scripture and admonitions and they were to keep this leather and keep referring back to it. It was a one session counseling that was done remotely. Um, and so the whole idea that, uh, that the pastor of the church now has uh, 20 hours of his week devoted to helping everything from serious marriage problems to somebody who just doesn't like his dog and everything in between, that is a model superimposed on the church by the world. Um, I've heard, I've heard even biblical counseling uh, gurus say that as a pastor, you should be spending 70% of your time counseling. I would radically say that's wrong. You should be spending 70% of your time studying the Word of God, 20% of your time preaching the Word of God, and 10% of your time doing everything else. So... Romans 15, 14 is very important because the, the model that says the professionals, so-called professionals, do all the counseling, do all the work of the ministry, that's very denigrating to you as the church. Well, what's the point of you getting Ephesians 4 equipped for the work of the ministry if it's not to do something? So uh, you are adequate. You are able to instruct one another. I believe that with all of my heart. Um, and that doesn't mean you have to have a degree in counseling. doesn't mean you have to have uh, tons and tons of special training. What we're trying to do today is to accelerate your understanding just a little bit. But frankly, if you've been walking with the Lord for a number of years, if you're learning the word of God and somebody comes to you with an issue, you're simply applying the word to their lives. Um, that's, what, that's what biblical counseling is. So we're going to start broad and uh, work a little bit more uh, to, to more detail. So let's do some introductory thoughts here. Uh, some of you don't know this, but I'm just going to give you a little bit of my own background. Not that that's helpful to you, but just so you know where I'm coming from. Um, back in the day when biblical counseling was a slightly newer concept, believe it or not, it was a newer concept, and there weren't so many educational structures uh, to support that. You and this is before the internet also. You couldn't just do an internet search uh, for biblical counseling. That was actually a new term um, back in the, in the 70s and 80s. That was fairly new. The prevailing wisdom was, even among those who were orthodox, the prevailing wisdom was secular psychology is not helpful. Um, but that's when you had what was called the Christian counseling movement. Christian counseling was basically trying to take secular psychology and superimpose Bible on it. And it doesn't work. Um, and because now psychology becomes the authority and the Bible becomes the footstool that we place that authority and that's totally wrong. So biblical counseling, um, really the, 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 by all accounts, kind of the father of the movement would be Dr. J. Adams. I've met Dr. Adams and is a tremendous uh, teacher of the word. But before that was really prevalent, before anybody knew about it, um, there, the prevailing wisdom was, okay, if you want to do counseling, uh, you, you grit your teeth and you go through some secular program and then you do what you want after that and you apply the Bible to people's lives because you have to get, if you want to make any money doing that. And, and that's actually a pathway that I took. Um, I don't tell a lot of people this, but I have a master's degree in marriage and family counseling. And I did this at a horrible liberal school that ironically doesn't believe in psychology because they, they believe that you can't see inside somebody's head, which we, we would agree with. Um, but the, the whole program was basically about the dynamics of how families work and, and how to work with them. And some of it was actually very useful just from a practical standpoint uh, uh, in the same way that 
you know, learning how to change a tire doesn't matter whether you learn from a believer or an unbeliever. It's still kind of the same. Um, and I, I was always amazed at how sometimes even uh, secular unbelievers made observations about families. I read one article by an atheist that said that the best family structure, according to his studies of thousands of families, is that there is male headship with a, with a loving wife that submits to him and children that obey their parents. That that's the family that works. Um, which I thought, well, God told you that thousands of years ago. Um, so I, I did that. I went that route and I spent some time in that world. Uh, the world of secular counseling is an ugly, idolatrous, horrifyingly dark, arrogant, prideful, I'm God and I'm the answer world. I had a Christian buddy that we would go to these conferences to maintain all of our licenses. We had to go, we'd sit in the back like, like children, just sucking our thumbs, trying to get through it. And it was just awful because in the counseling world, and frankly, even in the Christian counseling world, as opposed to biblical counseling, the counselor is the answer. And counseling is the answer. That's what our world believes today. Somebody appears before a judge and they've committed a crime. Well, you need counseling. No, you need redemption. And so, uh, so I've been in that world and I've seen the comparison and there is no comparison. The word of God is sharp. It's living. It's active. Nothing else is. There's no other authority. So that's kind of my own, uh, my own background that, that has driven me to, um, to be passionate about biblical counseling. So what are we doing today? Uh, let, me, let me talk about uh, the, just the ministry itself. Um, our counseling ministry is always a ministry continuing in development because um, it, it's a ministry that can never really stay the same because as the church changes, the ministry has to as well. Uh, right now, we've, we've just recently kind of done a revamping of what we're calling our shepherding ministry which includes three elements. Uh, that is our after-service counseling, which I'm going to talk about that later. That's primarily sort of a, a triage for what do people need and how to get them to those, uh, uh, have those needs met. Uh, our elders' shepherding meetings that we try to have with every family, every individual, uh, that is a second part of our shepherding ministry. And then counseling ministry, uh, which was, we're in the middle of revamping and redeveloping that, thus this training today. Um, we have now a shepherding ministry coordinator, uh, this young man right there with the, with the light on him, Caleb Fisk. Um, he's not the one doing the shepherding. He is the one to start to funnel people to the correct uh, person. The reason we're doing this is because the, the growth that we've experienced in the last year and, you know, Lord willing, um, because our world has basically gone insane and people now view the church as a place of sanity um, so churches are growing, they're being faithful. So we're trying to put in place a system that would work for 500 people, not, not just you know, three or 400. So that's our shepherding ministry. Counseling is one of those. Um, counseling ministry has to grow beyond just a couple of people doing numerous long-range counseling cases for months at a time. Has to grow past that. That's not sustainable. Um, my role, I'm transitioning my role to seeing more and more people and families to check in with them as a, as a shepherd rather than committing an hour of every week for eight months to one person or one family. I can't do that anymore as much as I love doing that. So today's training. This is not a comprehensive training. 
This isn't even a comprehensive condensation of an abridged summary of a succinct outline. This is just a touch, is all this is. Today is light and mostly just to get you thinking. Um, Today, uh, we're just doing the basics, but I'm hoping to inspire at least some of you to continue learning on your own. Um, I made a mistake when I started this uh, master's degree in marriage and family counseling. I brought to my first class my stack of Jay Adams books. And uh, that I had been reading and, and loving, and my professor said, I understand where you're coming from. Don't ever bring those here again. I, oh, okay. Well, you will have the opportunity to, to read the good stuff, and I'm going to tell you how you can do that shortly. But today, we're just, just touching this. Why have a counseling ministry instead of just paying the staff to do all the counseling? Well, first of all, the primary counseling we do is through preaching. Um, preaching demands devotion. And the work of the ministry demands devotion. Uh, so, you know, I, would you rather have a pastor that spends 30 hours a week counseling, five hours a week preparing to, to preach? Uh, no, it needs to be the other way around. Um, and in fact, my time is better spent. I mean, look, I'm going to spend three hours with you today and look at all of you. You're, you're being equipped at the same time. That's an effective use of all of our time. Um, now, obviously, our paid staff are among those doing the counseling, especially when there's a need for more elder-like authority. But we don't want to be the sole go-to people. Um, sometimes, I've noticed this. Uh, just the other day, I asked somebody to come to my office with me because I had promised to give them a book. Um, and <laughs> this person forgot I had made that promise and thought they were in trouble. It's like going to the principal's office. And I understand that. So I try not to call people to my office and say, well, let me tell you why. Sometimes it's better to just be talking to a fellow member first because they sort of feel like you're going to the principal's office if one of the the, the staff is is doing the counseling. Um, It gives you the opportunity to to make some deep life investments in in, uh, fellow believers. There's an opportunity for you to use the theological and biblical knowledge that you're gaining here to steer others toward Christ-likeness. And that's that's the, the spirit of Ephesians 4, equipping the saints for the work of the ministry is to do something. So I'm going to make some assumptions about uh, any of you who volunteer to do the counseling ministry. At the end, you'll have a chance to sign up not to be on the ministry, but to be considered for it. Um, we, we can't just throw people at that and say, oh yeah, you're qualified. You've been a believer six months. That's, that's fabulous. Um, the assumptions I'm working on is that you are at some level thinking about, have already done, or moving toward doing Bible Training Institute. Um, I would encourage you to do that. I know it's an investment, but you can't counsel properly without sound theology. Um, So that's important. I'm assuming a good theological framework. Um, If you're a member here, you're learning, you're growing, uh, maybe not agreeing with every single word of our doctrinal statement, but my goal is for you eventually to um, because as you see the word of God developed in your own life, you'll see that uh, that statement um, is true. Uh, a growing topical knowledge of scripture. I, I can't tell you right now how many times people say, well, could you give me the top 10 Bible verses for doing biblical counseling? Okay, there's 40,000 something verses in the Bible and you want me off the top of my head to give you the 10 of them that are the magic pill. Um, that's like that's like uh, the guy who asked John MacArthur, what one book do you use to uh, to prepare all your wonderful sermons? So I'm assuming that you are growing in your knowledge of the word. And one way you can do that is I would encourage you to walk through all of Paul's epistles and especially the application area and start to make lists of 
of what verses apply to what. You should know the word. Um, I'm assuming that as you grow in the word, somebody can say, can you tell me a good couple of verses about anxiety? And you can say, yeah, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Um, I would encourage you to memorize references. Anxiety, Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Anger, Ecclesiastes 1, 9. Uh, depression, Psalm 23. And to have these, uh, now you can buy some resources, verses for biblical counseling and so forth, but um, it's, it's better if that becomes part of who you are. So I'm assuming that I, I don't have time to pour that into you in one training. We've been pouring that into you for years from the pulpit. Um, I'm assuming a vital walk with the Lord. Everybody who comes to you in counseling either has a vital walk and they're being hurt from outside sources or they don't have a vital walk and they're being hurt from themselves. That's basically the two options. Um, and so if your own walk with the Lord is lacking, if you can't get in the word, and if you're not in prayer, it's, it's really hypocritical to feel like you can begin assigning that to others. Uh, if you're doing marriage counseling and you are married, I'm assuming a sound and thriving marriage. It's often, it's weird to uh, have a couple doing marriage counseling and then driving home saying, well, we should apply some of that to our marriage. Um, no, it needs to be applied now. So those are the assumptions that, that I'm working off of. All right, let's get going on the basics and, and we'll go uh, as fast as is reasonable. If I can get this to go, here we go. Okay, magic change. There it is. Uh, we'll put these slides online, by the way, and uh, under resources so you can get them. Uh, James, is that a good place to put them, under resources? Okay. Uh, definition of biblical counseling. It is the application of Scripture to life, period. That, that's what it is. And so obviously we start with Scripture. Scripture is authoritative. And it would be important for you to establish that up front. Um, when you're counseling with someone, do you believe that the Bible is the authority of your life? And that when I read the Bible to you and it contradicts what you believe, you're wrong. Okay, that's, that's, you have to establish that up front. Um, in order for counseling to be effective, both the counselor and the counselee must be committed to the lordship of Jesus Christ as revealed in the authoritative word of God. Do you believe that you as a Christian ought to obey Christ in all things as a slave of Christ? Absolutely. Great. Then we won't have any problems here. Well, I don't know. You know, that lordship salvation stuff, I believe that, okay. So you believe that uh, you can continue sinning uh, impervious to God's leading because you're saved by grace and that covers everything. How's that working out for you? Because you're here seeing me. So what, what's the issue? The issue is lordship. So you start with lordship. You start with the authority of scripture. Um, the scripture is also a comfort. Scripture is our teacher. The beauty of this is, is that doesn't make you the authority. That doesn't make you the, the, uh, the, the solution. God is the authority and his word is the solution. Now, just a little note here. Your experiences in the faith or with a similar uh, situation with the counselee, that might provide some illustration material, but be very careful that your situation doesn't become the standard by which others should operate. Um, it is an illustration only. Uh, ultimately, if somebody continues to offer examples of their own life as a reason you should do something, that's the mark of a false teacher. 
because they're not using the authority of the word. They're using the authority of their own life. And so, hey, since I messed up in this way, how about you mess up the same way? Um, So you might be able to say, well, when I was in a similar situation, I did such and such. And here is how I chose to abide by the word of God and the the consequences of of doing that were positive. Um, That's that's great. And again, under scripture's authority, um, successful counseling, what is that? Successful counseling is the constant application of biblical thinking, biblical principles, biblical behaviors. Counseling basically is the process of putting off the old and putting on the new ways of the believer in Christ. And Ephesians four seventeen through 32 gives us that long passage. I'm not going to take time to read that, but uh, read it for yourself. That's not a completely, it's not a completely bad idea to have all counselees read that as, your, as one of their first assignments. Because they're putting off the old, putting on the new. That's, the, that's uh, scripture's authority. So you have to start there. If you want to be in, in a counseling situation because it makes you feel good and because you want to offer your wisdom, then this is the wrong place to do that. Um, your wisdom is only wise when you rightly applied the word of God. Um, not because, well, I've been around for a long time and that, okay, look, you can be around for a long time and do the wrong thing for decades. So how did you apply the word? And you're asking them to do that. I want to talk for just a bit on bewaring of uh, being aware of pop psychology because I can almost guarantee you that popular psychology at some level has infiltrated your own thinking. And so, so you've got to work through that. I'm just going to give you some, some uh, examples here. Uh, the perceived need to vent versus communicating in a godly fashion. Pop psychology says that one of the purposes of counseling is for someone to come and just emotionally vent their spleen. This is why people get addicted to counseling and go for years and years because they think that's the solution. If it was the solution, why do they keep going? Well, it becomes almost like a drug. Um, Whenever I've, I've done counseling with somebody who brings their file folder that's four inches thick of here are all my diagnoses, here are all the people I've seen and, and, I, and they put it down. I just say, drop that in the trash. We've got to start over because you become addicted to, to, to counseling. Um, venting is not a biblical concept. Communicating in a godly fashion to work toward Christ-likeness is. Um, how about the self-centered human, humanistic ideologies? Self-esteem. Self-actualization, any me first thinking, Uh, a lot of psychological advice, for example, on dealing with conflict is much more about how to win and control the other person than actually getting to the heart issue. Um, There's all kinds of, and and I recognize it when people uh, throw these phrases out, I feel like I'm being attacked. There was a whole book about that. that. I feel like this. I feel this. I feel that. Um. So you want to be careful of those things. What is the, what is the goal? Um, the goal is to honor God. So beware of self-centered humanistic ideology that's about uh, 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 developing yourself and loving yourself and all of that. Uh, beware of self, the self-victimizing potential of the counselee. Um, the, they want to come to you so they can blame everybody else for everything. And we'll talk about that more in a moment. Um, how about the heresy of recovery-based thinking? There is no biblical model or paradigm for recovery. 
Recovery from, the only thing you can recover from is a, is a car accident. You recover from it. But you don't recover from drug abuse. You don't recover from alcohol abuse. Um, I don't even like the terms abuse when it comes to that because it still makes it f- seem like something that's out of your control. There's no recovery from addiction. That is not a scriptural concept. There is repentance, not recovery. And so when somebody says, well, I just need to, I need to recover from my alcoholism. No, you need to repent of being a drunkard and drunkards will have no place in the kingdom of heaven. So big difference there. And that may have infiltrated our thinking. Um, Celebrate recovery. It's in every church on every block. That thing is absolute heresy. It's written by Rick Warren. And first of all, it's the worst example of hermeneutics on Matthew 5 through 7 I've ever seen on planet earth. He came up with stuff that no scholar in 500 years has come up with. Basically, he took the ungodly 12-step program and tried to apply scripture to it. And um, in some churches, Celebrate Recovery is their membership program and you get baptized after graduating from Celebrate Recovery. What is that? That's a false gospel. They don't need recovery. They need to repent and, and repent and repent. So beware of that. Uh, beware of falling for the diagnosis that a counselee brings you. Well, my psychiatrist told me I'm bipolar. Okay, uh, there, there is a physiological basis for bipolar disorder. There's four particular genes that can be blown out in somebody's brain and they can't behave themselves right. Um, but that's no different than a drug-induced behavior problem. Uh, so, so if that person says, I'm bipolar or I have this or I have that, okay, well, that's not an excuse for anything. You still need to walk in the manner that's worthy. And I have seen... Um, in, in my experience, that seems to be the most common one. Bipolar is code language, psychiatric code language for when I get mad, I make everybody around me miserable. And when I get sad, I make everybody around me miserable. And I go up and everybody has to go up with me. And I go down, everybody has to go down with me. I'm going to say 99.9% of the time, that's just bad, sinful behavior, maybe indicative of an unbeliever. I have also worked with people who showed me the, the genetic tests and all the tests they went through who claimed to be believers. Um, one woman in particular, I think, was genuinely bipolar. And that's a neurological problem, which I'll talk about in a moment. <clears throat> so what was her goal? Not to fix that, but to walk through it in a way that doesn't sin against those around her. And so uh, she was able to manage that because she was trying to please Christ in the same way that if you have one leg or if you have some uh, debilitating physical condition, your goal is to please Christ through that. Exactly the same. So beware of the diagnosis. Um, we, don't, we don't recognize that for the most part here. Um, and if somebody says, well, I insist on you treating my bipolar and my this and my that. Okay, if you want to do that, go see a psychologist. Um, it won't do you any good, but go see him. Because we're here to apply the Bible to your life. Um, Beware of counseling being primarily focused on the counselee complaining about others. The goal is to get them focused on themselves. Because you can't change anybody else, can you? Um, what, What do you call it when you work really, really hard to make and to force others around you to change? We call that manipulation and that's sin. But you can change yourself. You can change your heart, you can change your mind, you can change your actions. So, and I understand, we all understand when somebody comes to counseling, initially, what's going to be probably the first thing? Uh, In marriage counseling, two things happen. One, two. And that's what happens. I have physically 
seen, uh, uh, it's usually the men for some reason, they're, they're pointing their fingers right there like that. I have physically reached over if I have the relationship with him and gone like this. And like, and one time he went like that. No, 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 no. Back here. That's the goal of counseling is you're pointing the finger at yourself and you're lifting empty hands to Christ. That's the goal. So beware of that. If somebody says, I need to come and just vent, um, I need to talk about all these horrible people. Okay, I understand you start there, but you're moving toward what am I going to do and how am I going to respond to this? Um, beware of subconsciously taking sides because of your personal experience or, or a bias. Um, maybe you're identifying more in marriage counseling, you're identifying more uh, with, with, with uh, one or the other uh, because of either gender or it's a hot topic for you personally or you have a particular opinion uh, such as uh, alcohol consumption is evil 100% of the time. And so if you've had a terrible experience with that, then you might have that opinion. That's not what scripture says. Scripture warns against being a drunkard, but it never says you can't drink. Um, there, there are other reasons not to, but uh, it being a law is not one of them. So just beware of when you start spouting things from your mouth that didn't come from a scriptural concept, it probably came from the world because those are the two options you have. So we want to be aware of that. And obviously then the gospel is paramount. The gospel is the center of what we do. Is it possible to do biblical counseling with an unbeliever? Sort of. I'm going to plant my feet firmly in midair on this one for two reasons. First of all, if an unbeliever comes to the church and says, I want counseling, I think we'd be silly to say no to that. Obviously, we want to have a chance to minister to them. But the illustration maybe you use is, I want to show you what the Bible says, but you need to understand that's like showing you how to drive a car, but there's no gas in the tank. That you, don't, you need to come to Christ. That is your main problem. Because I could help you solve this and solve that. I could even give you some solutions that might, from a worldly standpoint, make your marriage seem better. But you're still going to die and face God and be judged for all eternity. So who cares? Who cares whether you're happier in this life? So you point them to the gospel. The other reason, though, that, that I think we have to be aware of counseling the unbeliever is because that might turn out to be the issue. It might turn out that after you've done four or five sessions and the person's not doing their homework, they're not responding to wanting to submit to Christ's lordship, not wanting to submit to the word of God, um, saying things like, well, I've read the Bible and I'm praying it's just not doing anything and having that recalcitrant, hardened attitude. At some point, your duty is to say, look, I don't know anybody's heart, but you don't sound like somebody who knows Christ to me and you're pointing them to the gospel. Let's go back to the gospel. The believer, though, is motivated to obey because of the gospel. And so that's why the gospel has to be part of your your speaking with them. What did Christ do for you? He died on the cross to save me from my sins. What is your eternal destiny? My eternal destiny is to be with Christ in heaven forever. Uh, So how long is uh, forever? Well, tens of millions of years. So how many more years do you have to endure this problem? I don't know, 30 a little perspective there. The gospel gives us perspective. It also motivates, um, motivates us. It motivates uh, seeing others as Christ sees them. When somebody comes in and they're so filled with bitterness that they're clenching their teeth and they truly, and I've asked this question directly, how would you feel right now if you found out this person got run over by a bus? I would feel so good. 
Okay, that's a problem because that's a person who sits 50 feet away from you in church. Um, so the gospel helps us to remember to see others as, as uh, just as in need of redemption as ourselves and vice versa. Um, it helps you have compassion and pity on unbelievers. When, when a church member comes to me and says, I'm so angry with my mother, well, is she saved? No. Well, why are you angry? She's acting according to her nature. She's, how old is your mother? She's 75. So she's 5, 10, maybe 15 years away from facing God in an eternity in hell. And you're here worried about how she's making you feel. Okay, now, say it nicer than that. And, um, but the gospel helps us have compassion on the unbeliever if the unbeliever is the problem you have compassion on them Uh, the gospel tears down pride it instills humility just remembering the gospel i think a great assignment is to give a counselee to uh, a bunch of classic passages i want you to i want you to meditate on romans chapter one three five and eight this week and meditate on the gospel and let the gospel permeate your thinking Sometimes they'll come back and say, I'm done. The gospel reminded me that I'm just as wretched as this person that I think is ruining my life. It also remembers Christ's suffering. Uh, Hebrews 12, 3. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Um, So this person is upset with you. Your your wife nags you. so have, has she ever whipped you to the point that you're bleeding? And has she ever put a crown of thorns on your head? And she ever put you on a cross and humiliated you in nakedness in front of your mother and in front of uh, people that you know? Has she ever done that to you? Has she ever accused you of something that's not true because you're the perfect son of God? That's a little, that perspective is like, oh yeah. You know, you're just going down. No, I don't, I, I don't want to uh, compare myself to Christ. So the gospel is your most powerful tool. Just reminding them of the gospel. Another, again, we're just doing big picture here. One of, one of the things that you need to do is instill hope. And that needs to be by the end of your first session with somebody. Instill hope. One of my favorite verses is Psalm 4, 8. That I will lie down and sleep in peace for you alone, O Lord. Make me the dwell in safety. How are you sleeping? Oh, my mind is racked with worry every night. Well, the promise of God is that that doesn't have to be the case. That you can sleep, you can have hope. Um, for the Christian, there's always hope because Ephesians 1 says we have every spiritual blessing. Ephesians 6, we have the full armor of God. Worst case scenario, you'll go to heaven. Worst case. Instilling hope, I think, is such a key component. And what's the basis of hope? The Word of God, the Holy Spirit, and positive uh, outcomes for obedience. Sometimes a counselee will begin obeying the Lord. The situation will not change except one thing. Their attitude and their heart have changed because now one of the consequences of obedience is joy. And it's, it's the best thing in the world when the counselee says with a big smile, nothing has changed. Some of it has gotten worse and I'm okay with it. It's like baffling. I'm, this is so weird. I'm happy in the Lord. I'm joyful. And my husband is still a jerk. But I'm okay. Counseling done. Because that's the goal. So you're, you're instilling hope. And uh, as much as we would like to think we are the 
we are the source of that hope because we're compassionate and we're kind or you're, you're a huggy uh, type of person. Ultimately, you're not the source of hope. You are the instrument of hope. You are the, you are the conduit uh, for the word of God. How about, uh, again, big picture concepts, respectful, compassion, and care. Romans 12.10, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Uh, don't present yourself as above or better. Uh, I, one guy called that uh, counseloritis, the swelling of the head of the counselor, because it does feel good. Somebody has come to you, so receive that charge with great humility, um, but you're, you're not better. Uh, you're not, you're not uh, over them in some way. There's a phrase I try not to use unless it's with somebody a generation younger than me, and that is the phrase, I'm proud of you. Because who cares whether I'm proud of you or not? I will say, I think the Lord is proud of you. Your father loves what you're doing right now. And, and, and I'm thankful for it. That's a better phrase. I'm thankful for what you're doing. But when I tell a fellow believer, I'm so proud of you. Okay, well, I'm not his dad. I'm not his heavenly father. So we show respectful compassion and care. Um, uh, there, there's been numerous studies, by the way, that show that between the time somebody decides to go see a, a counselor of any kind, doesn't mind, doesn't matter which, between the time they decide and make an appointment and the actual time of the first appointment, their hope and their uh, level of optimism tends to go way up because they're finally doing something. So you just capitalize on that and you, you show that compassion, you show that uh, respectful care. Again, you are not the solution. So don't see yourself or counseling itself as the answer. You're the means to giving hope and direction through the word of God. Because listen, if it's possible for a counselee to get addicted to counseling, you can get just as addicted to thinking you're the, that this person's life is going to fall apart if they don't see you every week forever. Now, the fact is, it might. But that can't be your problem. You've given them the word of God. You've given them the tools. And ultimately, they have to decide whether they're going to obey or not. Uh, I'll say this also, and this might sound counterintuitive. Sympathy is not a solution. Oh, I feel so bad for you. Oh, that must be awful. That must be terrible. I I understand that's a good segue into a more meaningful uh, conversation, but sympathy is not an answer. You know how many times the New Testament presents sympathy as an answer to our problems? Zero. Zero times. Well, I can relate to you. You know, my, my husband was a horrible alcoholic as well. I can relate to you. I have sympathy for you. That sounds good and it feels good. It is not a solution. It is not a solution at all. So um, that makes you the solution, not the word of God. Let's talk about a biblical analysis of a problem. And basically, there's, there's, there's three parts to this. There's the perception of pain. Uh, that's basically the reason a person is coming in the first place. Um, a person seeks counseling when discomfort or pain exists. Um, they, there's a lack of peace. There's a lack of joy in the Lord. Or there may be pain in that a person doesn't know how to proceed further in an issue. That uh, there, there's some place they're stuck in life. I, I, I have these opportunities. I don't know how to discern the will of God. Can you help me uh, with the scripture say? So there's the perception of pain. Uh, only a few times has anybody ever made an appointment with me as their pastor to come in and say, I just wanted to give you a report of how good God has been. 
Usually there's pain of some sort that they're bringing to the table. The second part of analyzing the problem, the identification of contradictions to scriptural principles. What you're trying to do is identify the thoughts, the words, and the actions in that person's life that are contrary to biblical uh, commands. And lest we sound like we are uh, not being compassionate, let's use the example of somebody who is truly going through genuine grief. Um, They have just lost a spouse or a child and they're just in agony and they don't know what to do with those feelings. And so they come for for help. Um, First of all, obviously, uh, just good old Christian love, care and compassion, holding their hand, weeping with those who weep, uh, Romans 12, obviously that is part of, the, part of the solution. But ultimately what you're pointing them to is what is true? What do you know to be true? And you begin to separate truth from emotion. That you can, your emotions can be in the gutter and yet truth lifts you up. Maybe not emotionally. I, I've had so many believers tell me, I'm so depressed I could step in front of a bus and it would feel good and yet I'm joyful in the Lord. And that's, that, that is the dichotomy of being a Christian. Your joy is not dependent on circumstances. So you, you don't say, well, of course you're grieving. Um, and that's just all it's going to be. It's, the grief is, okay, we, we understand this. What can we do that is scriptural to begin to give you comfort? And in that case, comfort needs to come from truth, obviously. Um, so I... I, I want you to read these chapters every day. I, I, I'm hurting so bad I don't feel like I can read. Okay, I want you to read this verse every day. You can do that. And to begin that process, so you, you're holding their hand through it, um, but you're identifying anything that contradicts scriptural principles. Um, when, when people are grieving and they say, well, I need to figure out which of the five stages of grief I'm in. No, you don't. Those are man-made principles. Everybody grieves totally differently. You, you, to put people into one category doesn't work, but the word of God applies to everyone. So um, that's, a, that's a harder one. Uh, when, a, when you see a married couple and they come in like this, well, something's wrong. It's ironic to me how many times married couples tell me that, all, that, 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 uh, that I don't know what I'm talking about. If you only understood how bad she is, how horrible he is, okay. What scriptural principles are you violating? And we need to figure those out because that's why you're in pain. You're in pain because you've flipped Philippians 2 on its head and instead of considering others as better than yourself, you're considering myself as better than my spouse. Thus, you're doing this. A person focused on themselves generally lets feelings and emotions dictate their words and behavior. Um, and sometimes we'll even use feelings as a source of legitimate authority. This is big in pop psychology. Um, because I feel something, therefore it is legitimate. Well, it may or may not be, okay? Um, I'll use the example of hitting your thumb with a hammer, which interestingly, I did that yesterday. So I thought, okay, I'll use the illustrations. It wasn't bad. It was just enough to remind me uh, to be thankful for the first thing that went through my mind was thankfulness for the nerves that I have in my body. And I was, thank you, Lord, that it wasn't what used to go through my mind. You hit your thumb with a hammer. Is that pain legitimate? Yes. Is the feeling that you want to hurt somebody at that moment legitimate? No, that's sinful. And so you deal with the sinful feeling. Feelings may or may not be correct. 
They simply reflect where your, where your, uh, your mind is. So you're identifying the contradictions to scriptural principles. And, and this is the hard part. You're, you're walking through a lot of mud. When somebody comes, especially with a complex issue, they're, they're, they're just vomiting mud on you. And part of your job is to let them do that and to begin to sift through it. And we'll talk more about that process a little bit later. And then the third part of ana- analyzing the problem is counseling toward heart change. Heart change is what leads to behavior change. You don't start with the behavior um, you start with the heart. You can do both at the same time, but, but the heart has to be first. Matthew 15, verse 18, Jesus said, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. Those are, these are what defile a person. She needs to stop calling me names. Okay, well, first of all, let's let her deal with that you can't make her do that and if i'm dealing with her i'm going to say well well what's in your heart well i didn't mean it yes you did because it came out your mouth if it came out your mouth at some level you meant it i didn't mean to say that the only time that's really true is when you mix up syllables or say something that your brain mixes up but when you denigrate somebody and you're counseling them with this if you when you denigrate somebody like that at some level you meant it so we need heart change. You need to repent of, of having a, a, a terrible heart towards your husband, first of all. So you're counseling toward heart change, um, towards softness, toward humility, um, toward giving up their rights. Well, I have a right to, really? Show me. Because Philippians 2 says that uh, you should consider everyone as better than, than yourself. Where does that put you? At the bottom of the ladder. Do you know what people in a company at the bottom of the ladder are usually? Happy. Because you can't go down further. You know, you see the, you see the, the, the poor 16-year-old working at McDonald's just kind of, hey, I'm making eight bucks. You know, this is great. And you see the manager running around, suicidal. Okay, who's the happiest one there? The one at the bottom. Humility and being at the bottom of the ladder is the place of happiness. Um, the most unhappy people I've ever known and tried to counsel with concerning money issues are the ones who have the most of it. And the people who live paycheck to paycheck and, and, uh, and say, hey, we've we got to get on our knees here because uh, I just can't seem to, to make enough, they, they learn to be joyful. So those are the three ways you analyze the problem. You, there's the pain that's brought to you. You begin sifting through and identifying contradictions to scriptural principles. And then you counsel toward heart change. Um, now, obviously, there are going to be times, and I think the biggest one is probably grief. Um, there's going to be times where your, your job is to just primarily hold their hand and be an encourager and to read scripture to them. Um, sometimes with, with counselees, I'll just say, can I read the Bible to you for a few minutes? Because they're, they're hurting so bad they can't read it for themselves. So I'll read the Bible. And sometimes I'll even joke that there's no, you know, there's no background music like on the Bible app and things like that. But just read the Bible to them and encourage them. Um, sometimes there's not always a sin issue, but almost always there will be. So you kind of hope for the ones that, oh, there's no sin issue. You just, you're just in pain. Um, but what could the sin issue be? How they respond to the pain. So that's what you're helping with. All right, I said I'd talk about this, so we'll do this part, and then we'll uh, take our first break. I want you to be careful to watch for blame shifting. Blame shifting is extremely common in counseling. I'm going to say it happens almost all the time. Um, Let me put it to you this way. So that we don't become self-righteous, we all are blame shifters. 
we all are those who want everyone else to take responsibility and not take our own responsibility. I'll give you some specific examples in a moment um, or after our first break. So you have to watch out for this in your own heart. When you're complaining and griping about something in your heart, and you may even have a smile on your face, I want you to get in the habit of just stopping for a moment and saying, okay, who am I blaming for this attitude right now? What am I blaming? Well, I was not going to be on time. Uh, I, don't, I, I was in a bad mood. Uh, my wife said something rude to me, this and that. What is that? It's you, 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 you. Where did the, the first blame shifting happen? In the garden, Genesis 3. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. It's the first marital counseling session. And God said, who, who, whose fault is it? It's hers. And what did she say? It was Satan's. Blame shifting right in the garden. Uh, you could make the case that that, uh, that was among the very first sins of all time. Is blame shifting. Um, that doesn't mean that others don't bear a responsibility in the counselor in the counselee's problems, obviously. But um, where blame shifting becomes sinful is when you say, "I wouldn't have responded in this sinful fashion if he hadn't done that." No, you have a choice. You, you have a choice. I, I've talked over the years with a lot of men, a lot of men who have. Um, physically assaulted their wives. And it's the same thing. If she wasn't so rude, if she just kept just nagging at me, I, I wouldn't have done that. No, you had a choice. First of all, she's five foot two and you're six one. Just sit there and take it if she's, if she's pummeling you physically or verbally. Just be a man. You had a choice. And so that sort of blame shifting shifts quickly into um, reviling abusive behavior where you now see yourself as the victim when in fact you're the one who is, who is uh, kind of having the attitude, well, she started it, but I'm going to finish it. So blame shifting, whose fault is it? Yeah, there might be a ton of responsibility on, on another person's part, but you can't do anything about that. What you can do is something that's about your own, your own responsibility. So watch for blame shifting. Um, try not to say, aha, you know, because you'll see it and go, oh. So help counsel them through it. This is, uh, if you don't get anything else out of today, this is what I want you to get. And we'll do this part and then uh, we'll take a break. You need to change the goal to Ephesians 1. To change the response of the counselee. A great question in your first session is, what do you want to see happen? What is your goal? Well, I want this, 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 and this. What you need to do is start shifting them toward Ephesians 4.1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. Paul says, just reminding all of you who are reading this, I'm in a jail cell. So don't complain to me about anything. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in the manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. I would say this, the counselee will rarely, rarely present the correct problem and the correct solution. If they could do that, they wouldn't be seeing you. Um, and you all know how this is. You can help somebody else, and when you're in the middle of your own problem, it becomes difficult to think sometimes. You, you, get, you get confused. You get so uh, out of whack that, you, that we need one another. That's why Romans 12 said, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. That's why Romans fifteen fourteen says, instruct one another. Um, let me give you a couple of examples. Somebody comes in, 
saying, I, I am constantly depressed. That's my problem. There's a lot of possible causes for this. Uh, you don't deny the reality. Uh, you, you, don't, you don't say, well, if you really love the Lord, you wouldn't be depressed. That's not helpful. The goal might be to decrease the depression through biblical intervention, especially if there's sinful or unproductive behaviors that are happening um, as part of the cause of depression. Uh, sin is depressing. And so sometimes you'll be able to discern that there is a sin pattern that is causing depression when you're trying to treat the depression rather than the sin. But what's the real goal? This is an achievable goal. Whether the perception of depression goes down or not, the goal is to walk through the depression in a way that's pleasing to the Lord and to arm them with spiritual weaponry, uh, increased prayer, scripture memorization, personal Bible study and meditation. And the question I get sometimes is, but what if it doesn't work? The goal is for it to not work. The goal is for you to walk in the manner worthy. And that means increasing your prayer, your scripture memory, your personal time in the word, your meditation on the things of the Lord. If you're doing that more and doing it consistently, that's a successful outcome. Does that make sense? Because there's a thousand different causes for depression. So so your goal isn't to fix it. Uh, another, Another example. Um, I spent a lot of years working with, uh, with children. I've worked with thousands of children. And one of the big things, especially coming out of an abusive situation, um, was constant nightmares. You know, what do you do with a seven-year-old who has nightmares? Well, that's, that's a separate issue, but let me talk about somebody who definitely knows the Lord um, and you're, you're working with them. Constant nightmares, a lot of different causes. The solution is not uh, success equals get rid of the nightmares. That's not the solution. The solution is to respond to nightmares in a way that pleases the Lord, gives comfort to the counselee. One of the, one of the goals is to fill your mind with the things of the Lord. Fill your mind with the things of the Lord right before you go to sleep. Have a plan that the moment you wake up from that nightmare, you're immediately filling your mind with the things of the Lord. And I've seen so many times, somebody say, you know, my, with a big smile, my nightmares are worse than ever, but my time in the Word is so sweet that it's worth it that it's fine. Um, isn't it great that in the millennial kingdom you're, we will dream dreams and see visions, even our unconscious thoughts will be godly. Uh, what, what a great time that will be. So you're changing the goal to Ephesians 4.1. You know what's beautiful about that is everybody can do that. Everybody can do that. So somebody might come to you with a problem that you think is out of your pay grade. I've been shooting up meth for 20 years and I can't stop. Okay, you know, and you're, and you're, you know, dialing me. Steve, what do I do with this? Same thing you do with anybody else. Okay, is that a sin? Absolutely. What, do you need to recover or repent? I need to repent. How many times have you repented? A million times. I don't feel like I can quit. Do you believe you're saved? And you walk through the gospel. Yes, I'm saved. I just have a, I have a, a physical craving. Okay, so we're going to surround ourselves with scripture and with truth. Um, how, many of your, how many times have you failed? A, a million times. How many of those times has God forgiven? A million. And you begin to walk them through the gospel. You can do this. You can simply say the goal is to walk through this in a manner worthy. And maybe you're 80 years old and still struggling with the same sin but God has been faithful to you and you have hope that uh, when we see him, we will become like him because we see him just as he is. So um, change the goal to Ephesians 4.1. The sooner, the more upfront you do that, the better. 
Uh, when you get five sessions in and you're trying to uh, help them decrease their nightmares and it's not everything you're doing is not working uh, and you're trying, well, try melatonin. How about warm milk? Like Anybody can give them that advice. They can stop at the bus stop and say, hey, I'm, not, I'm having nightmares. What do you think? You know, well, I wear socks. I don't know. Maybe that does something. You get five sessions in and you've tried all these solutions and it's not helping and you say, well, maybe we should shift over to just walking in the manner that's worthy of the Lord. That becomes a hard shift to make because it sounds like you gave up, right? So you start up front with that. So what are you doing then? You're redefining success into an achievable goal. Somebody says, I need to quit doing meth. You, I don't know if you can help them do that. I can't, I can't be there 24-7. They, they get the needle out and knock it out of their hands. I can't do that. But teaching them to walk in the manner worthy of the gospel, everybody can do that. It is possible. Um, another example here. When counselees bring their own diagnosis, uh, well, I'm anorexic. Okay. Uh, that's the, that was the diagnosis, the, the big one in the 90s. And, uh, you know, everybody was anorexic. Well, what's the problem with that? The problem is, is that they think that solving that so-called disease is the, is the, pro, is the solution. It's not. You redefine success. You identify the heart issue. Why are you doing this to your body? What's going on in your heart? Um, and ultimately, very often, uh, those who suffer with that particular malady uh, have been told that the key to their whole life is self-esteem. And when they don't have enough of it, then they start hurting themselves. Um, so you, you get to that heart issue. Um, I, I dealt with a young lady once who that was where she started and she was just skin and bones and it was horrible. And I got an email from her a few years later and she said, isn't it great? I just joined Weight Watchers. <laughs> and to her, that was a happy moment, you know. Um, that was fabulous. In fact, your goal is assessing the real solvable problem. This is it. What is the heart issue and what is the biblical solution? So I'm going to stop there and I'll give you two examples uh, of what is the heart issue and what is the biblical solution. Let's take about a, a 10 minute break. I know we're a little over time, but I knew that was going to happen. So 10 minutes, I will start. And uh, regardless of where you are. <laughs>